0: Welcome to Texas Style Co-Working. The Ranch Office is a neighborhood community office that delivers a warm atmosphere with a heavy dose of Southern hospitality. Located in Memorial, Katy, and Baytown, we offer private offices, conference rooms, event space, and much more. Come change things up and check us out. Remember, life is better at The Ranch.
1: In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, We bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed oil and gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart.
0: Today, I'm at the global headquarters of Phillips 66, and my guest today is Todd Denton. Todd is the Senior Vice President for HSE Projects and Field Operations Support. Todd, thanks for coming on the show today.
1: Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm really excited to have you because I know some of the things that uh, we're going to talk about here in just a second. But let's talk a little bit about you first. So we're here in Houston. Obviously, you live here in Houston now. You are from Houston?
1: Not originally. Grew up in West Texas, close to Lubbock, mostly small towns, and went to Texas Tech. Started my career in Amarillo, and actually met my wife in Lubbock while I was going to Texas Tech, and. We now have four kids and one grandbaby, another one on the way. And Oh, good for you. Two yeah. kid-in-laws, and so, yeah, it's so, fun. So one grandbaby and one on the way. Grandbaby, one on the way. Okay. Yes, sir.
0: Well, that's why you have kids, <laughs> so you can <laughs> have grandbabies.
1: I discovered that. Yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs> you ought to be able to have the grandkids first. Okay, so you're from that West Texas area. Of course, this show's heard in 134 different countries, and a lot of people don't have any concept of how big Texas is. But my daughter actually went to another smaller university in Lubbock. So the day that I took her there, of course, we're here in Houston, actually just north of Houston in Conroe. And I knew Lubbock was a long, I'd only been there one time in my life. And that had been like 20 years prior. And I knew Lubbock was a long way, okay? But I knew you go to Abilene and then go over to Sweetwater and then exit to go to Lubbock. I knew Abilene go. was a long way. And I thought, well, by the time you go a long way to Abilene, then you got to be almost to Lubbock. And no, I go 20 miles past Abilene, exit right. off and get on the highway, and it's still 100 miles to Lubbock. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> But it's salt-of-the-earth people there. Unfortunately, my daughter had a very, very serious car accident six weeks into her freshman year. Wow. She was on life support and in a coma. Wow. I mean, it was a—the story has a happy ending. But when she did finally come to and recover, the paramedics who picked her up that Friday night actually came and visited her. They couldn't believe she was still alive. But I tell you what, and, of course, we show up there— obviously devastated and we've got no place to stay when we wound up having to be there two weeks mm-hmm. and boy mm-hmm. the people in Lubbock just those are salted the earth really people, people. Yeah. yeah absolutely in fact someone told me a story I think they were a professor at tech and they had just gotten to Lubbock been there about a week and his wife had a flat tire on one out of three days of the year that rains in Lubbock <laughs> you know and this guy gets out in his suit and tie uh-huh. goes over changes her tire in the rain and she looks at him and says thank you what do I I owe you. Mm-hmm. And he said, ma'am, you haven't lived in Lubbock, Texas very long, have you? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So it's really great people there in Lubbock. Okay, so you graduated from
1: Texas Tech, and your degree was? Electrical engineering. Electrical engineering. Now, you've been in the oil and gas business? Since 1990, but I spent the first four years at the nuclear weapons plant up in Amarillo. Okay. And you were a design engineer there, I think? Yes, a uh, tester design engineer. So our group designed the testers to test the weapons at that plant. So it was a very fascinating job.
0: Now, you weren't involved in HSE, though, at that particular time?
1: No, really, just on the engineering design side. Yeah.
0: The nuclear industry, they're the gold standard now in safety.
1: That's exactly right. And I did learn a lot about processes, procedures, and how to make sure you do things right.
0: Yeah, what they call human performance.
1: Exactly, exactly. How do you get into the oil and gas industry from the design and nuclear? That's a great question. Like I say, I was there for four years, and that was 86 through 90, and it was at the end of the Reagan buildup of nuclear weapons, and the job was a lot of fun, it was technically challenging for an electrical engineer. But 1989, the Berlin Wall fell, and you're thinking about what's the future of nuclear weapons, and it was a little, to be honest, a little frustrating working for the government. <sighs> an opening for <laughs> no kidding. A, right. saw an opening for a pipeline engineer in Amarillo and with Diamond Shamrock and applied and got the job. and honestly felt like I stepped back two decades in terms of technology from what I was doing at the plant versus what was in the oil and gas industry, right? And that was in 1990. 1990. Yeah. Well, we've come a long way. I
0: just that. started to say that's one of the things we promote on this show a lot, as a matter of fact. Yes, we've come a long way in in that. We've come a long way in safety, which is what we're going to yes, talk sir. about here in just a minute. You were there for 15 years Diamond Shamrock, they're now owned by Valero. Diamond Shamrock
1: eventually became Valero. We actually relocated to San Antonio after about 10 years or so and where the Diamond Shamrock headquarters were. And shortly after that, Valero acquired Diamond Shamrock or Ultramar Diamond Shamrock at the time. And so I was with Valero until about 2006 when New Star Energy spun out from Valero. And then I was with them for another six years or so. Okay. And you were in pipelines. I was always in pipelines, pipelines and terminals that we called it at the time. And for the first 15 years or so of my career, it was pretty much projects. Got the opportunity to do some really large, fun projects with Diamond Shamrock and Valero. And you're on the engineering side Engineering projects, yes, sir.
0: That's like the first 19 years of your career. So how do you go to HSE?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm still asking myself that question. (laughs) When I came here to Phillips in 2012, again, it was in a pipelines or midstream role, and to be honest there's a lot of work to do i think the pipeline side had been there was an opportunity on the technology side like we just talked about in upgrading our pipelines learning what we had out there improving the reliability we didn't have a good record it was an opportunity for us to bring our pipelines and our terminals up to world class and over the next 10 years we really improved our pipeline integrity and asset integrity
0: yeah, and that's what I really want to point out, and this is something that we point out on this show all the time. The progress that the industry has made in the last 20 years, I'm going to pick that number or whatever, the progress we've made in protecting the environment, progress we've made in safety, the progress we've made in health. In fact, you guys, you've won the API Pipeline Safety Distinguished Operator Award for
1: three years in a row. So let me tell a story there, and I joke about Phillips, but... This was 2012, so this was about the time that you had Bridges Marshall, Michigan incident. You had Macondo, which wasn't a pipeline incident. Right. You know, it was an industry that was bringing a lot of attention to us. And I remember being in some industry strategy meetings, say about 2013, and having the conversation, okay, we're spilling this much volume per year. We need to get that to zero. And I remember laughing, thinking that's just not possible. So you go fast forward 10 years or seven years to 2019, 2020, and at Phillips, we had a year, and we deliver over a billion barrels per year by pipeline. And we had a year where we released only 35 barrels. I tell people that's not zero, but it's getting pretty darn close. Yeah, it really is. Especially when you go to where we were and where the industry was, and the industry's doing the same thing. It's getting better. It goes back to the technology and learning more about what's out there, learning sooner, repairing the pipe before it fails. And we've made tremendous progress there. From our standpoint, we were able to do that here. And that award, I was really proud of our organization to achieve. That's something that is really respected among the midstream companies with API in that award. So that was quite an honor for us.
0: You actually moved into the role of HSE in
1: That last year, just a year and a half ago. Oh, really? Yes, sir. I was in midstream, and I think we had some good results from the safety and the pipeline safety side, and Mark Laser gave me the opportunity to step into this role from a bigger perspective, looking at the corporate level HSE. So I've got refining HSE. I've got global compliance projects, a few other groups as well, but really pleased that I have been given this opportunity and it's been a challenge because I've had to learn a lot. I've never worked inside a refinery and of course we're a big refining company so I'm learning a lot about the refining side but at the same time when it comes to personal safety and process safety there's a lot of similarities just in our industry whether it's midstream chemicals refining that piece of it has been familiar to me and I feel like I'm starting to gain some ground there.
0: Well, that's great. Well, we're going to talk about that here in just a second because I'm going to have to bring up something here. The intro to this show is we're about everyone coming home safe, but you had an experience in 2017 where somebody didn't come home safe, right?
1: That's right. I moved into operations in 2005 and it's where it started to hit home with me, the reality of how serious operations is, maintenance, projects, all of that. But I thought, okay, now I'm in operations and I went through several years and we had some pretty good results. And I just always thought I would finish my career without having a fatality in my organization. And then I got that call, 6.48 p.m., February 9th, 2017. It's one of those things that you just never forget.
0: Like when where you were when Kennedy was assassinated exactly. or whatever. Exactly, or 9 11. Yeah, yeah.
1: I've told people I can tell you what I was doing every hour of the next 72 hours. And it kind of burned in my mind. But yes, we had a release on a pipeline during a maintenance activity and a fire resulted. And one of our employees was caught in that and was fatally injured. After that call, of course, we were on the ground not too long afterwards, and the fire was still burning. Made news, right? Had to go visit the family and give them the news, and this young man had a wife and an eight-year-old daughter, and like I say, I'll never forget that again, and that was where I also said, never happen again. Yeah, Lessons learned, obviously, as with any incident and any success, but that was definitely a, a keystone moment for me.
0: Okay. So you came into this role not too long ago. You took over kind of, what should we say, a already a mature safety program or whatever? Right. Okay.
1: Good observation. It's funny because when I stepped into the role, we're industry leading or we're an industry leader when it comes to safety and process safety. So I stepped in the role and I thought, well, what can I bring to this? And do I need to bring anything to it? We're doing pretty well. But it's also not my nature just to say, we're good enough. And it's interesting because our safety and process safety and industry is the same way. We'll make progress and then we flatline. And then we make progress again and we flatline. We've seen that over and over. And we're kind of in this flatline performance right now, industry and us. Whether it comes to safety, serious injuries and fatalities, process safety, all of the above. That's the challenge now, is how do we take this to the next level? We've had two fatalities in the last two years, and that's, again, just drives at home the seriousness and the hazards that we have out there. And we want to eliminate, especially, those serious injuries and fatalities. That's our focus, and you mentioned human and organizational performance. We think that's the next evolution. We know it is. Others are doing it. The aviation industry is learned from it, the nuclear power industry, very much in line with that nuclear weapon industry as well. The acknowledgement that people make mistakes.
0: That's first rule. Of human number one,
1: and you've got to have the safeguards in place and then collaborating to learn both successes and failures and becoming a learning organization and knowing that how we respond matters. Historically, something bad happens and what do we do? We go straight to who did what and and what do we need to do to them, right? Exactly. And so fortunately, we move moved past that. But it's kind of ingrained in human nature. You know, someone makes a mistake and you just want to go to, well, let's do something to stop that person from doing that again. But we have to step back and say, okay, if say someone opened a valve that they shouldn't have opened, why did that happen? Rather than just the what? That's exactly right. Was he or she trained well on that procedure? It's my pet peeve, or it was, we've gotten a lot better, but it's always my pet peeve when I sat in on incident investigations. And we get to the end of the incident investigation and the cause was didn't follow procedure. And then I would always say, well, why didn't they follow the procedure? Why does it matter? They didn't follow procedure, therefore we should discipline them. I remember one time sitting in on one of those and I said, finally, I said, well, okay, they didn't follow procedure. And you're telling me they should have. Tell me about the procedure. Well, it's a great procedure. It's very detailed. It's 40 pages long. It's, okay, stop. (laughs) Uh, You know, you just just answered my question. Let's go back and look at that. But I think it's really about getting to the why and the organizational piece of it as well. What's our role? What's the supervisor's role? Is there training issues? All of the above. I think it's diving deeper. What's leadership's at? And what's the culture of that group or that organization? And its leadership, there setting the right tone to be able to learn from those incidents rather than just reacting to them. Coming out of these fatalities, we've really epitomized that in how we responded to it because what we've done is they were contractor fatalities. We've taken a big group of our contractors and said, let's figure this out together. We established this team. We had multiple contractors. We had multiple work groups under this. And we came out of it with three recommendations that we're implementing internally. But the key part of that was partnering with the contractors rather than saying, hey, you guys are messing up, do better, or we're not going to use you anymore or whatever. It's really about let's partner and learn together on how we can get better in the future. That's been nice to see this year. To me, that's our first level of improvement right there
0: most people will probably be listening to this in January. We're actually recording it in December. So we're at the end of 2023. Mm -hmm. So that's been the focus for 2023. And you look back on it.
1: That's exactly right. So our first quarter, it was not good. The performance wasn't good. And we've established a new metric that we call injuries from serious incidents. It's not necessarily just a serious injury, but it could have been. If it had significant potential to be a fatality, for example, but it was a minor injury, then we'll still categorize it as an injury from a serious incident. So it's kind of a subset of your TRIR, of your total recordable injury. Right, right. And that first quarter, it was a large percentage of our injuries. At the same time, we were working this contractor partnering team and the initiatives from that, and we started implementing those coming out of the second quarter, really. But we have had a decline each quarter since the first quarter. Now, it's not to say we've figured it out. Every time that I have ever thought that, something immediately pops up that tells me we haven't. I feel like we're on the right track in that regard. But we've got still have a long ways to go.
0: Well, it's back to what you said, and almost every safety expert like yourself, I've talked to them at Baker Hughes. I've- talk to them at Halliburton. We get those kinds of companies on the podcast. They all exactly say that same thing. You can never get to the point where you feel like you've arrived, Mm -hmm. because if you do, you're going to really find yourself in trouble.
1: Yes, we like to say it's a continuous journey. Exactly.
0: That's exactly right.
1: It doesn't end, and hopefully it's about a continuous improvement journey.
0: Something I want to ask you about, because I think this is something that a lot of people will be interested in, companies like Phillips, or everybody in oil and gas. In fact, I just heard a story at the UTA Oil and Gas Safety Conference here in Houston a couple of weeks ago, and they called the operator who had the tank battery facility. There was a leak in the tank battery. The operator calls contractor. That contractor calls another contractor who in turn, I can't remember if it went to three three or four. It went at least three levels. may have gone four levels. What they wind up doing is, it was a fiberglass tank, and it's in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. They send this crew out that works on fiberglass, okay? Okay. Yeah. They go out there, and they put the fiber, you know, they repair the leak. Well, it's like zero degrees in North Dakota, Mm -hmm. and they can't get the resin hot enough to do what it's supposed to do and then dry. So they go inside the tank— They turn on a heater. Oh, my word. And the rest of the story is not pretty at all. But that's your issue is dealing with all these contractors. And you saw that. How do you get a handle on that?
1: That is a challenge. And, you know, one thing that we've talked about, especially coming out of these incidents that we had a year or so ago, is all of the contractors were telling us the same thing. And that is there's a workforce issue out there coming out of COVID especially. So during COVID, you had the downturn. You had a lot of people retire out. Demographics we're working against us still are. And now you've got a lot of infrastructure-type projects that are happening, whether it's EV automobile plants or these huge semiconductor plants that are being built in the U.S. And so that's drawing workers away. That's a challenge on getting trained, qualified workers. And so that was one of our findings was— We need to make sure that we are training and qualifying the workers and hiring contractors that have a good training program. There's a very high correlation when we meet and talk with contractors around what their training program looks like and how robust that is versus their safety performance. That's what we look for. The challenge you're talking about with subcontractors and subs under subs, you just have to manage that, frankly. That is that is something that we've talked about. We've seen it. But we have to treat our subcontractors the same as we do our primary contractors. Yeah, exactly. They're part of the same organization.
0: Yeah, you need to really be watching that. Exactly. So, Todd, it doesn't take long to fill up a 25-minute conversation. <laughs> so that's what we've done here. And I really... Again, appreciate you coming on the show. Any other gems
1: of wisdom you want to give us? No, I don't have gems of wisdom, but I do appreciate you having me on. And I think for me, this is obviously an important topic. And my passion is around not just making Philip 66 stronger and better from a HSE standpoint, but our industry. Let's make our industry the best that there is when it comes to that, that piece of what we do.
0: Well, that's exactly what this show is all about. So, again, thanks for coming on the show. As always, to everybody out there, thanks for listening. Please tell your friends to listen. Post us on LinkedIn, your other social media. Leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify, or there's a review link in the show notes. We'll put Todd's LinkedIn contact information in the show notes. And uh, tune in again next week for another episode of Knowledge Vines HSE podcast. Just before we sign off... I've mentioned it, I think, maybe in the last couple of podcasts or whatever, but... Knowledge Vine and three of the four or four of the five execs in Knowledge Vine come out of the nuclear industry, Todd. (laughs) So they've actually written a book called Remedy, which is the formula for an evolving human performance culture. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy your books online. However, for a limited time and while supplies last, my listeners can get a free copy of the book if you just reach out to me on LinkedIn and request it. And you can discover more about Knowledge Vine by finding in the show notes its website link and other contact information. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn for any show suggestions on topics or guests or if you're looking for a speaker for your conference or, like I just said, if you want to copy of the book. And we'll see you next time. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the
1: Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.